So Money episode 86, Jeff Chrysler. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Good day to all of you. Welcome to So Money. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Today's guest is a triple threat. He's a writer, performer, and producer with impressive Ivy League credentials who believes that the world can be saved with more thinking, more passion, and aggressive napping. What? That's right, naps. And I think he might be onto something. In today's overstimulated society, you know, taking mindfulness breaks or naps is essential if you want to stay focused and productive. And I adhere to this. You know, my husband actually calls me a professional napper because I'm one of those people that can pretty much fall asleep anywhere for 10 minutes at least, and I can get back into the game of life with full force. It really is my fuel. Today's guest is Jeff Chrysler. He is an award-winning comedian, and I actually had the opportunity to cross paths with him at thestreet.com years ago. His work, including his best-selling satire, Get Rich Cheating, has been praised by mainstream media, including the New York Times, Chicago Tribune, CNBC, and so many others. Jeff is a sought-after corporate speaker as well, and he was the featured comedian at the 2011 Economist World Conference alongside, you know, just some, just some, you know, you know, some regular people like President Bill Clinton. He is a graduate of Princeton and Virginia Law School. He's a former attorney and private investigator. I did not know this about Jeff. I mean, he never ceases to amaze me. Several takeaways from our interview with Jeff. You're going to love this. Why he turned down a six-figure job opportunity that could have put him on a partner track at a leading law firm. Why he doesn't like to use automatic bill payments, which I do like to do, so I was really shocked to hear his viewpoints. And the best thing that his parents gave him, and by the way, it's not his allowance or his first car. (laughs) Here is the very funny, the very smart, the very passionate Jeff Chrysler. Jeff Chrysler, my friend, welcome to So Money. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so happy to reconnect with you. For those of you listening, Jeff and I, we crossed paths several years ago. I was a correspondent at thestreet.com, and you were one of our most popular video contributors. And uh, then I got laid off, the financial crisis happened, the sky fell, and we lost a little bit of touch. But I'm happy to say that you are doing so, so well. I uh, just want to brag about you for a second. Uh, Please do. <laughs> I mean, let me... Uh- call in my mom to get her to listen. Okay, to sure. Um, so you are the winner of the Bill Hicks Spirit Award for thought-provoking comedy, author of the bestseller, Get Rich Cheating, which you published right around the time when the sky was falling in 2009. Uh, the book has really taken on a life of its own. Uh, it, it is. It goes without saying that you are also a comedian. This is, this is uh, your craft. I'm curious, though, when you started your career, and you've had quite the journey, what came first, your mission to make people laugh and to create laughter, or your mission to make people think more critically about the issues around us, business, uh, politics, uh, the way the world works? Because your tone, your focus, your angle with comedy is not, you know, it's not slapstick humor. It's not like guy walks into a bar kind of humor. It's, it's really kind of thought-provoking. Um, what came first, your passion for comedy or your passion for being thought-provoking? 
Uh, I think probably the being thought provoking. I mean, I, it's we don't have time to cover all of the history, but basically, you know, I went to some great schools and I went to a great law school, Virginia Law School, and I wanted to save the world. I wanted to be Thurgood Marshall or Thomas Jefferson, and those jobs were taken. Um, <laughs> and what I quickly found was that I didn't want to be a traditional like corporate lawyer. Um, and I sort of, as I was studying for the bar, I literally, literally at that time was taking a workshop in comedy. Um, and I found that all the things that comedians do, carry around little notepads, carry tape recorders, write down ideas, were things I already did. And the more I explored sort of comedy and satire, and this was sort of before The Daily Show exploded, um, but it was starting, uh, was the idea that comedy and satire really can change minds, can make a difference. Now, I don't necessarily think it has all the impact in the world, but it's part of the gradual sort of uh, information spreading. Um, you know, look at The Daily Show and, and the thing I think its legacy will be um, that now when people say something, leaders say something, make a proclamation, the people listening to it will automatically sort of in the back of their head have John Stewart's voice saying, well, actually what he really means is, so then we sort of look at things more critically. Um, and I found that comedy and satire enabled me to sort of explore things that people either didn't understand or didn't want to talk to, about or were uncomfortable talking about. As long as there was some laughter involved, it made that conversation possible. Um, and you see comedians do that all the time, whether it's politics or religion or or ethnicity, anything that they're passionate about. They can have that conversation if there's uh, some laughter. So it happened at a comedy workshop was kind of your aha moment. Is that when you decided to merge both of your passions? Uh, I think... I think so. I think it was sort of a, a gradual progression. Like I knew that I didn't want to be um, really a, a practicing lawyer in the traditional sense. Um, not that people that do that don't, are can't be wonderful people, but it wasn't for me. Um, so sort of over a, a couple year period, I was doing some part time work in the law, um, and I was also doing more comedy and writing and exploring that world. Um, and it, it just sort of at some point they the two ships sort of crossed in the night, and I jumped upon the the comedy one. It just felt like it felt better to me. It felt, you know, even though it was more uncertain and even though it was, how am I going to pay my bills and feed my future imaginary kids? Um, it felt like the, the ship that I wanted to be on. Now, um, what was your big break? I'm curious because now you're everywhere and you, you, you know, the momentum had to start somewhere. Where, where, looking back, where, when was that moment that kind of, uh, really opened doors for you? Um, first I will say in the entertainment industry, there's never actually a real big, big break. <laughs> um, that's, that's a myth, but, uh, I would say as far as a moment when, um, I felt like, okay, I can do this and I can make a career at this, uh, was probably in a, uh, two year period, I'd say between 2004 and 2006, um, in 2004, I got together with a group of people and we did a political comedy tour. Um, it, it was, uh, we went to Texas and um, Florida and uh, we went to all the battleground states and it was sort of a left-leaning tour and, and politics was a passion of mine, politics and business. And we made decent money at that. You know, we weren't getting rich, but I was like, well, we can do this. There's an audience for what I'm passionate about. That was in 2004. That sort of kept going and I kept growing that audience and doing that. And then in 2006 was when the, the opportunity to write this book, Get Rich Cheating, sort of first came about that a, uh, a publisher approached me. I was at the street.com, like you mentioned, doing a column and a video there. And a publisher approached me sort of out of the blue. Um, you know, it's a story I don't like to tell struggling authors because I got fortunate that they came to me. Um, and it was again a moment where I said, wow, 
the things that I want to talk about, the things that I find interesting and I'm passionate about, um, there's actually an audience and there's actually people willing to, you know, pay a little bit of money, not a lot, but a little bit of money to hear these things. Um, and so in a way, my big break was sort of more um, internal. It was more mental. It was more, okay, mm-hmm. it's out there. Let's take the leap. Um, and then after that, I did. And since then, I, I've been making whatever earning a living I have just with uh, humor. Yeah. So the book is called Get Rich Cheating, The Crooked Path to Easy Street. It is, as I mentioned, a best-selling book, a satirical take on the way government, politicians, everyone, Wall Street, big business, um, and the insanely rich get richer. Uh, the book came out in 2009, which was perfect timing, right? Because there were bailouts yep. and Bernie Madoffs of the world making front page news. Now it's 2015 and your book's still continuing to get uh, a lot of traction. You're very busy. What though about the climate has changed? Well, I think that there is more of a sense now, um, more, more people trying to find the right way to put it. When, when I wrote it, one of the underlying themes was this idea that it feels like everyone that's getting rich is cheating. Um, you know, that's not entirely true, of course, but there were the, you know, the baseball players of steroids, the executives that get, you know, ruin their company and get $40 million um, severances. Um, and these things still happen, but I feel now in some way there's a greater sense, um, whether you call it the the income inequality conversation or the, you know, the Piketty uh, book that's out about capitalism there's more of a sense that there is some structural, um, I don't want to say unfairness, but that the the, the playing field isn't quite um, level. Uh, and I think that that was sort of what was underlying the book was the idea that, um, you know, we all believe if we work harder and good people, we're going to be successful. And yet we see these examples of people that do the opposite. And, and you know, in the cost-benefit analysis, the, there's no costs. They're not getting put in jail. They're not getting arrested. You know, for the most part, they're not getting in trouble. And, and it, it, it feels unfair. Um, you know, it certainly wasn't meant, and it's not an indictment of the capitalist system or something grand like that. It was just sort of calling attention to it. And I think the atmosphere has changed and that I think more people um, are feeling that sense. More people are maybe looking at the recovery since 2009 and saying, you know, stock market's great, corporate profits are great, but working working uh, wages are the same. Um, and, and I think that I've found a little bit more receptivity. Is, is that a word? Mm-hmm. It's, gotten, it's gotten a better reception sort of at a, at a broader um, range of sort of income and educational levels and, and a broader demographic. Uh, I think when it first came out, it was sort of the people that were attuned to this, either because they were maybe particularly suffering or they were following certain uh, issues in the news. And now it seems like sort of everyone that I talk about it uh, with or with whom I talk about it sort of it resonates in some way mm-hmm. from, you know, CEOs. When I go, like I just spoke in at Texas for a bunch of uh, bank CEOs and um, to, you know, everyday comedy club patrons. Well, I think we've had time to reflect, right, and become yeah. more rational about our feelings. I think when the book came out, understandably, emotions were running very high. There's a lot of anger and confusion. Uh, we knew the system was broken, but we were just kind of buried in our emotions. Rather, now we've kind of come out of the woods a little bit and we we're able to see clearer. And now we have some distinct leadership as far as, you know, uh, shaping the conversation about what needs to change, whether it's Sheryl Sandberg or Jeff Chrysler or, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren. We have now, I think, some advocates who can really create structure and soundness around what needs to happen. And people are listening, which is which is the best 
I think the best turnout. Right. I mean, I've I've always said, and I, in, I've always guided my my comedy and the conversations that it leads to is I don't want to um, come forward when say this is the correct answer. I don't want people to have a certain opinion, whether that's vote you know left or vote right or money's good or money's bad. I just hope that people actually think things through. And if comedy and a joke can help that sort of thought process, great. If you think things through and come to a different conclusion than mine, awesome. Let's bring it all to the table and find a solution. Um, I certainly, though, am bothered by, and we see it in politics more than anywhere, the fact that people are so sort of metastasized in their extreme positions that they won't even listen. Right. Um, and hopefully, you know, in some way, humor can break that down. So what's new for Jeff Chrysler in 2015? Where can we find you? What are you working on? Uh maybe a, a comedy series in the future? I mean, I know they're looking for a replacement for Jon Stewart, perhaps. <laughs> sure, from uh, from your podcast to, to God's Central's ears. ears. Exactly. <laughs> um, I am, you know, as most sort of uh, freelance types, I have a thousand projects. Maybe I've pared it down to 500. Uh, the big things I'm working on lately are I am doing a radio show, uh, website, and YouTube channel called The Final Edition. And it's with, my partner is Tony Hendra, who uh, I'm sure some of your listeners or many of your listeners know the movie Spinal Tap. He played the band mm -hmm. manager in Spinal Tap. He was also the original editor of National Lampoon. Um, he helped start Spy Magazine. He's a, he's a satire and comedy legend. Um, and we have a bunch of different contributors around the country. And um, the radio show has been doing really well. It's gotten picked up by some places. Uh, you know, we always hope to do better. Um, and that has been a great sort of focal point for me as a writer, a performer, and also a producer um, to sort of help get my voice and other voices out there. Uh, it's it's a little bit of everything. It's it's politics. It's a little bit of business. It's a little just cultural criticism, but it's very um, has a very strong point of view. It's very we call it satire with teeth, um, and that's been great. And of course, we're always looking for the next step. Um, I am also working on another book uh, about money. It's not quite the comedy or satire that Get Rich Cheating was. It's about the psychology of money. Um, and I'm working with a really brilliant um, professor. His name is Dan Ariely out of Duke. He wrote Predictably Irrational. If you haven't had him on this podcast, you should. Um, and we are trying to sort of find a way to bring some of the more personal, less sort of cultural, but the more personal uh, um, financial mistakes that we make. Um, and, and make that sort of a more entertaining and more engaging and sort of have a, a broader receptive audience to that. Um, you know, again, our approach is sort of not to give advice. It's not, uh, you know, Susie Orman as much as showing people sort of, you know, what the, um, what the behavioral economics are, what the mistakes that we make. And so they can then be aware, Hey, you're, you're doing this, you know, when you purchase this item on credit card, you know, it's really costing you 15% more. You can do it if you want, but just so long as you know you're doing it. Um, those are kind of, you know, that those two things plus ongoing um, stand-up and writing for whoever will have me write for them and hoping for the the real big break um, are sort of the, the main things that are going on with me right now. Working with Dan is fantastic. I interviewed him for my second book, <clears throat> Psych Yourself Rich, a few years ago, and he was so generous with his advice. He just come off from writing Predictably Irrational, which is if anyone's mm. never read that, pick it up, buy it, run to the bookstore and buy <laughs> yeah. it, or run to Amazon and pick it up. Um, so I, I'm excited for that partnership. Please keep us posted. I will. All right, let's transition now to my so many questions. I want to know a little bit more about you and how you think about 
money in particular. My audience always likes to hear from people they respect and admire uh, a side of them that they don't usually get. You know, we we know so much about people's work, but what about kind of the the thinking behind that and maybe even how they manage their money? Not specifically, not asking you to open up your wallet or anything or your, mm-hmm. your mint.com account, but um, starting with what's your financial philosophy, Jeff? Do you even have one? Um, I do. It's not a great one. And that is simply that money isn't everything. Uh, there's, you know, money isn't happiness. I know people from family relations to people I went to schools with that are extraordinarily wealthy and they still have problems. Um, I know people that are struggling and they still have problems. Um, and so my philosophy has, has sort of been not to make every decision about in my life about what the best financial aspect is. Um, now, sometimes that can lead to, you know, moments in a, in a freelance clip career when you're sort of struggling to make ends meet, but that's sort of been a guiding philosophy. I think I was um, very fortunate. I grew up in a family that uh, we weren't rich, but we certainly didn't uh, want for things. Um, and so I, money and the fear of not having money has not been a driving force of mine. Was there a time when you walked away from a potential opportunity that was relatively lucrative, but you just felt like it wasn't right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I, you know, as I mentioned, I I went to Virginia Law School, which is a top, I don't know, 10 or five, a great law school. Um, And I went to Princeton before that. And I had several offers for um, that traditional law career. You know, I was a summer associate at a firm in Boston and then become a young associate and then picture yourself eight years later, your partner, et cetera, et cetera. I, I turned down um, a few of those jobs where at age 25, they offered me six figures. And all I had really done to that point in my life was was crack open books and study. Um, and somehow I, I turned down, I can specifically remember three distinct offers. Um, and in addition, I sort of just avoided getting a few others. So I, you know, at this point could be talking to you from uh, <laughs> my space station <laughs> as opposed to my uh, home office. But yeah, I turned away some some opportunities. Um, Six figures at age twenty five. That was uh, I bet that was hard. Yeah, and that was you know a number of years ago. Not not that six figures is I would sneeze at it now, but um, you know in the in the nineties that was uh, whoa yeah. yeah. Well, uh, you mentioned briefly that you grew up not rich, but uh, never wanting for more or never feeling like deprived. What's a money memory? growing up that to this day still not haunts you, but, you know, is, is part of your, you know, of, of your, of your DNA of who you are, how you make decisions, um, a a critical money moment when you were a kid and what happened, where were you, what did you learn? Sure. Um, this is probably a, well, I'll just tell the story. I won't preface it. I was, uh, I'm going to say nine or 10, um, and I grew up in uh, in the town of Amherst, Massachusetts, which is a college town, UMass Amherst College. Um, certainly not a city. You know, kids were like I rode my bike on my own to meet friends, and we were out somewhere. And I was supposed to get picked up by this uh, Chinese restaurant I can remember now called Hunan Garden, and nobody was there. And it was getting late and dark, and there were like fireworks apparently going off. But to me, I was scared. It sounded like gunshots. And I remember like sort of having a panic attack because I couldn't get in touch with anyone. This was pre-cell phones. And I walked around and, and the restaurant was closed. And I walked by a payphone 
And just on a whim, I jiggled the handle and, and a quarter or whatever, a dime, I guess it probably was, popped out. And, I, and there was a dime there in the thing. And I use it and I call and I got picked up. Um, and while this just seems like a, you know, a, a scared little kid getting a, a bit of fortune, um, for some reason that sticks with me that even in the direst times, like it's not, something will be okay. Something will um, sort of save me, if that's the right word, uh, financially. Now, is that a responsible philosophy to have? Mm -hmm. No, I, you know, I should... And I, and I do, as an adult now, plan more to make sure I am the one providing that dime in the phone. But the fact that sort of in a moment of desperation, on a whim, I found this sort of mini lifeline that happened to be a dime um, has stuck with me. Um, again, it's not the best lesson for people that just to just wander off and you'll be okay, but it, it stuck with me. Well, I feel that. And I've actually heard from my other guests variations of that Um of that feeling, which is I've heard expressions like there's more where that came from or the world is abundant. I think that is kind of along the lines of what you're saying mm -hmm. is that, of course, we have to work hard and we have to plan and we have to make sure that we have our ducks in a row and, you know, all that good stuff. But at the end of the day, too, some things are out of your control and sometimes good things happen. Right. <laughs> and to and not rely on that as your survival method, but it's nice to keep that in the back of your head. Right. And even the best laid plans, I mean, maybe that's not in that lesson, but mm -hmm. when I look back at my law career choices, I mean, now the, the legal field is very different. People that come out even great law schools aren't guaranteed an income. And when I went to law school, it was sort of like you get out and you'll be fine. But even people that try to play it safe and plan ahead in this economy, like what is a safe route? You know, you sort of, you have to, um, I don't want to say count on providence, that's not it, but you sort of have to be aware that there are other options. Agree. Yeah, for sure. And it can be scary when you're freelancing, but I prefer this lifestyle than working for the man. Right. Because I got laid off from the man. Yeah. The man uh, is a jerk. <laughs> well, let's talk about failure for a moment, because I think that out of failure, uh, if you if you fail right, you end up successful. Mm -hmm. um, what is a failure, a financial failure that you recall that uh, taught you a lot? What happened? Um, well, in the entertainment business, what I've been able to do and fortunate able to, able to do is do a lot of great projects, put a lot of effort in, um, and have them be critically well-received and have them be fun and rewarding in their own right, but they haven't necessarily um, been financial successes and they haven't sort of um, what I like to call turned over, you know, like you're turning over a car and sort of taking on a life of their own. And so, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a philosophical outlook whether I consider them failures, but, um, you know, at a bottom line perspective, there were, were two things that I put a lot of time and effort into um, that were successful in many ways, but not financially. One was we took a great show uh, to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. It was called The Americans. It was um, big costumes. It was in 2008 during the election, and it was sort of Mr. Show meets American Dad meets The Daily Show, and it was, you know, we had a great time for a month in Edinburgh, but uh, and great reviews, and we were on the BBC, uh, but sort of then you came back September 1st, and that was it, um, and it was over, and, you know, we'd spent a lot of time and money. Um, and another one sort of similar is I hooked up with uh, the woman who co-created The Daily Show, and for three years, we I was on her production team. We did this off-Broadway run of a show called Shoot the Messenger, which was 
great. I mean, I worked with great people and it was fantastic. And I didn't have my own uh, money in that invested, but a lot of time and effort. And it just sort of petered out and never became, you know, a TV show or a paying job. It was a, you know, a three-year volunteer effort. Um, both of those are things that I, big picture in life, would choose to do again because they were great lessons both um, from a creative perspective as well as learning sort of via the mistakes that were made, learning what not to do. Um, but, you know, from from someone who went to Princeton and then law school, neither of which, neither of those were great sort of financial decisions. Mm-hmm. Right. Sometimes we do things not f- that have value, but not necessarily financial value. Correct. That, that, and that's a lot of what a creative career is, is mm-hmm. finding the value, but not the financial. And, you know, it's difficult, but when it goes well, it's great. I... Now that I have you, and because you're so uh, entrenched in the entertainment industry, is it true that like rejection is such a huge part of of what you do, of what happens to you? And and if I mean, how do you get over that? Um, yes, it's true, and and I think rejection sometimes is it, it's a. It, it's a broad word. Sometimes it's literal rejection, like, no, we're, we're not going to cast you or are you. And sometimes it's just a, it's a broader realization that the um, entertainment industry, the creative industry, is it's sort of a feast or famine or they say, you know, there's no middle class. It's you basically either you make it really big and are, and are successful and sort of things come to you or you're struggling. It's hard to just do the work. Um, and that, in a way, it's its own form of rejection in that you spend, you know, 90% of your time looking for work and just 10% of it doing the work. Um, you know, there are different stages and I've been on different projects and worked on TV shows where it hasn't been like that. But, you know, even the people that are, you know, writing, like I have friends who are writing on The Daily Show and they don't know now if you know, they have Emmys, but are they going to have jobs in mm. the end of the year? They don't know. Um so the form of I almost look at more as uncertainty rather than rejection, but they're you know they're related. Um, how you deal with it is, I uh, you know when the times are good, you make sure financially that you save that you put aside, and um, you know if you're making you know twenty million dollars, which I've never made, but if you're making you know a lot of money, you don't think of it. You you, you sort of amortize it, if you will, over the course of your career. Um, that's how you at least how I survive financially. Um, and then it just, you really, you really need to have, um, a good support team, you know, have a great family, um, loving wife, great kid, um, and friends and sort of the civilian friends who are outside of, um, you know, the creative industry, um, just to sort of, you know, keep your perspective. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Well, let's shift gears now and talk success. We've talked failure. We've talked rejection. Let's keep it happy. And yay! talk about yay! Let's talk about a so money moment, a Jeff Chrysler so money moment where you achieved some level of financial success that you're really proud of. You worked hard for it, or maybe it was just dumb luck, but you liked it. You loved it. Tell us what happened. Take us there. Um, I think I'd go back to what I mentioned earlier about that moment, sort of between '04 and '06, which oh my god, that's ten years ago now, isn't it? Um, when uh, I started paying my bills, doing what I was passionate about creatively. Um, that was both sort of doing political comedy and then this Get Rich Cheating book. Um, you know, when when a publisher said to me, we're going to give you, you know, X thousand dollars to write a book about what you're passionate about, um, it was a great 
feeling um, to, to sort of have that valued, especially when what we were just talking about, the struggle of being creative and always looking for work. It's someone um, validated what I was doing. Um, and that was definitely, you know, that was that was a great a great period because I really felt like, OK, this is this can work. Um, and it did. And it does. It can. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. How about habits, Jeff? Do you have rituals, financial rituals that help keep you make that help you make smart decisions or well-guided decisions about how to spend and how to save, invest, et cetera? Um, I do. I don't always stick to them, but I, I try to. One is that I try not to use um, automatic bail pay as much as I could um, on uh, you know everything from cable and car payments to paying off credit cards. Um, I, and this is sort of a result of looking at the uh, behavioral economics that I've been studying more closely that you know, it's there's a thing called pain of paying um, mm-hmm. that you know it, that affects what we're willing to pay on. And I think if if every month on my you know my bank account it just pays out a thousand dollars worth of bills, and I don't I never think about that, that isn't as effective at, at keeping me in check. Whereas if I go on there and I have to say, oh, this month I have one hundred forty dollars for cable, is that worth it? It helps me stay on top of it, and I certainly have. You know, adjust, or negotiated cheaper cell phone rates, and try to adjust my cable and things like that that um, make a difference. It uh, hasn't uh, affected you. Not I mean, for me, I like to auto pay because uh, I don't ever miss a payment, and I'm never worried about mm-hmm. missing deadlines. I have a very crazy life, and I mm-hmm. I have forgotten to pay certain bills because I wasn't on auto pay. So has that never has that never been a problem for you? Given that you're doing, are you like putting envelopes in the mail or <clears throat> no, I'll, I'll still pay through my online banking. Um, but I don't make it automatic if that makes sense. Um, there are a few bills that could be, um, sort of automatic and, uh, I haven't missed, I've come close. There are times like if I, I don't go on the road as much as I used to, but there used to be times when I'd be on the road for a few weeks and that would always overlap with bill paying. Um, and so at that point, I try to make it. one of my checklist items for going on the road is, you know, toothbrush, razor, and make sure your bills are paid, <laughs> um, which is a weird combination. Well, at least uh, you know. At least you know what you, what's yeah. got to get done, right? Okay, almost wrapped here, Jeff. You've been a fun guest. Let's talk so money. Fill in the blanks. I start off a sentence. You finish it really fast. And I'm actually curious as a comedian what other questions you think I should add to this list. But okay. let's start with what I have so far. If I won the lottery tomorrow, say a hundred million dollars, first thing I would do is I would uh, peel off five million dollars and have a party for all of my friends, and I'd fly them all in, and we'd have a great time celebrating life. And then I would invest some wisely, invest some in a fun way, and keep the rest in my pocket. Five million for a party? Well, I wanted to have a little more, but you know, <laughs> I mean, I did research. I did research a book of get rich cheating about like the what's his name's uh, was it Dennis Kozlowski's party on Sardinia? Oh you know? yeah, didn't he well, also have like a ridiculously expensive shower curtain or something or shower? Yeah, I don't yeah. know. He had a was it he had a gold shower curtain? Gold I mean, there were the, yeah. the stuff that be, I mean, in the book, I mentioned <laughs> some of the things that people bought that were just awesome. So I know five million dollars in in the grand scheme is actually a cheap party. I mean. Compared to what I could do. I think Kim and Kanye spent like a lot more on their wedding. Or maybe they didn't because everything was sponsored. I don't know. Well, 
they are both my idols. <laughs> <laughs> Mine too. How about that? Okay. The one thing that I spend on that makes my life easier or better is. Uh, I have a guy that comes over and if I spend an hour on Facebook, he slaps me in the face. <laughs> Wait, is it, what's his name? His name is Joe. No, I don't have that guy. Okay, there is a guy that does that. Really? No, I like, so, awesome. um, it, oh, gosh, I, I wish I could remember his name, but it's uh, Ramit Sethi's brother and Ramit Sethi is the founder of IWillTeachYouToBeRich.com. He's going to be on the show soon. Um, brilliant, brilliant man, has even equally as brilliant siblings. One of his siblings um, did an experiment where he was he went on Craigslist and he paid someone to come over his house and like slap him every time he checked his Facebook account just to kind of uh, see like if it would actually work. And it did. Um, and that resulted in some interesting studies and it kind of put him on the map in some ways. And he, I think it, like The Daily Show mentioned him. It was quite awesome. funny. So it's funny that you mentioned this and I've gone on now a tirade, but no, that's great because maybe when I when I can afford it, maybe I will. Yeah, have, I think I all you have to do is put it out on Facebook, on uh, Craigslist. Like I would, you know, looking for. Seeking. Well, maybe that should be my job. Maybe <laughs> we should flip the tables. <laughs> I'm always looking for side income. Oh my gosh. Okay, so um, no, but really, what makes your life easier or better? What do you spend your money on? <sighs> you know, I, I you gave me this question, and I I, I don't know food. Yeah. You know, shelter. Um, actually, <laughs> I, I will say I do splurge a little bit and buy healthier food. I've been trying to eat mm -hmm. um, healthier. So, you know, um, salmon instead of chicken, um, you know, good, good, healthy, uh, uh, you know, nuts and berries and, and stuff like that. Um, I think healthier food really makes a difference and it's worth a few bucks more. Yeah. <clears throat> What's your best purchase ever? Your, whether it was an investment or a a store bought item. Oh wow! Um, my best purchase ever. Uh, I would say going to paying to go to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival for the first time. Um, if you don't know, if people don't know, it's like the biggest fringe festival in the world. It's it's art, it's comedy, it's theater. Um, and the first time I performed over there, I essentially had to pay my way. Um, to fly, to house myself. Um, we didn't make any money, and it was just, it was a great experience. Um, I, I really think that, you know, paying for experiences sometimes can be better than paying for items. True. And you might even discover with Dan Ariely that, and this has been kind of uh, unveiled in the past, but maybe you guys can put a, a new spin on it is that experiences are kind of the only thing that will make you happier in terms mm -hmm. of if money does translate into ha happiness. Um, yeah. Which is debatable, but uh, yes. experiences are one way to get there. Yeah, there's a guy. Um, I believe his first name is Mike. I'm, I'm killing it. Mike Norton, I believe, who co-wrote. He's a, at a Harvard, and he co-wrote a book. Um, I think it's called Happiness. It's something about money and happiness in the title, but the, that's the basic driving force with, with real studies behind it, saying you know experiences are much better. Um, one thing I wish I had known about money growing up is. Um, that it isn't just there, that it doesn't just appear, um, on a tree outside your house. Uh, you know, it, it goes a little bit against that story. I said that money, you know, that things will, will turn up, but, um, that you have to do a little bit of the hard work yourself to make sure it's there. You sort of have to plant the tree, if you will, to have the money be there. Did you have an allowance growing up or? Um, I did, but... 
trying to think. It's kind of a handout. It didn't you didn't have to like? Yeah. Well, I haven't mean, had the lawn and for. No, I always had a word. There was never like a, it was never an explicit like every week you get this amount of money and you have to do your chores. But like I sort of un maybe because I was the youngest child and I saw it in my older siblings. I, it was unspoken that I just would do things around the house. Um, or mow the lawn or clean the gutters or whatever. Um, and then I would have money if I needed it to get something. Um, I sort of had to clear the bigger purchases, if you will. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> Almost done here. When I yep. donate money, when you donate, I like to give to blank because? Um, I like to give to uh, education projects because um, whether that's uh, to local schools that need books or bigger picture stuff, um, because I uh, think the greatest blessing, the greatest gift that my parents gave me or that I've had is, is a great educational foundation. Um, and I, you know, even if I had turned my back on the law partnership track that that afforded mm-hmm. me, I think that that is um, the most important thing for someone to have. Absolutely. I mean, the rigor that you go through in academia, especially law school, I mean, just getting into law school is hard, <laughs> let alone sitting through classes and sitting through the bar, um, there is some kind of <clears throat> ethic that really just evolves that's uh, priceless when you go through a rigorous uh, program like that. Yeah. And just, I think, learning how to problem solve the, the different educational fields, like you essentially can break down to how to like think critically. Right. Um, you know, and if our economy was what it was you know, 20, 30 years ago where people got in a job and stay there for 60 years, it'd be different. But now people have to learn to adapt and adjust. And you can't do that without the tools to adapt and adjust. And finally, I'm Jeff Chrysler and I'm so money because? I am so money because I'm like money. So... I always thought you were going to say something like, because I get rich cheating or something like plugging in. All right, because, because getrichcheating.com and thefinaledition.com and jeffchrysler.com are yeah. the greatest places to spend your day online. Well, I concur. I did spend a good bit of my evening last night. Um, I could have watched you on your videos for a long, long time. Loved your book trailer, by the way. I thought it was so Thank funny. And, uh, and so, again, Jeff, really happy to reconnect. Thank you for being such a generous and fun guest today. Hope you had a good time. This was great. Thank you so much. Everyone check out his, uh, Jeff's, uh, well, it's not new, but it's still very, very relevant book. Um, get rich cheating. Uh, we'll have all the links for Jeff and his book at somoneypodcast.com. Thanks again, Jeff. Thank you, Farnoosh. Great job. If you'd like to learn more about Jeff Chrysler, check out his website at jeffchrysler.com. You can also follow him on the Twitter at Jeff Chrysler. His book is called Get Rich Cheating, The Crooked Path to Easy Street. And we've got all these links and where you can find Jeff at somoneypodcast.com. There as well, we have the transcript and the comments from this episode and all previous episodes. And just a reminder, folks, if you'd like to win a chance, just saying, if you want to maybe connect with me one-on-one, Here's how you can qualify. You can go onto iTunes and write a quick review of the show. And uh, every Saturday, I go through the new reviews and I select one person, one new reviewer. I read that review out loud and I give that person a free 15-minute money session free with me. I do this every single week. So if you're interested in this and you want to increase your chances of connecting with me one-on-one for free again, totally free, leave a review and hopefully I will select you. 
And uh, as always, I want to keep hearing from you. So you can go on to somoneypodcast.com and there you can click on Ask Farnoosh. And right away, your pop up, it'll uh, ask you to write your question about money, work, life. Maybe you have a guest suggestion for me here at the podcast. And if maybe you have some feedback as well. And that is all for today. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks again to my guest, Jeff Chrysler. Hope your day is so money. <laughs>